Section two of Gallagher and Other Stories by Richard Harding Davis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Gallagher, a newspaper story, part two. An hour passed, and the cab was still moving more slowly over the rough surface of partly paved streets, and by single rows of new houses standing at different angles to each other, in fields covered with ash heaps and brick kilns. Here and there the gaudy lights of a drug store and the forerunner of suburban civilization shone from the end of a new block of houses, and the rubber cape of an occasional policeman showed in the light of the lamp-post that he hugged for comfort. Then even the houses disappeared, and the cab dragged its way between truck farms, with desolate-looking glass-covered beds, and pools of water, half-caked with ice, and bare trees, and interminable fences. Once or twice the cab stopped altogether, and Gallagher could hear the driver swearing to himself, or at the horse, or the roads. At last they drew up before the station at Torresdale. It was quite deserted, and only a single light cut a swathe in the darkness, and showed a portion of the platform, the ties and the rails glistening in the rain. They walked twice past the light before a figure stepped out of the shadow, and greeted them cautiously. "'I am Mr. Dwyer of the Press,' said the sporting editor briskly. "'You've heard of me, perhaps. Well, there shouldn't be any difficulty in our making a deal, should there?' This boy here has found Hade, and we have reason to believe he will be among the spectators at the fight to-night. We want you to arrest him quietly, and as secretly as possible. You can do it with your papers and your badge easily enough. We want you to pretend that you believe he is this burglar you came over after. If you will do this and take him away without anyone so much as suspecting who he really is, and on the train that passes here at one twenty for New York, we will give you five hundred dollars out of the five thousand dollar reward. If, however, one other paper, either in New York or Philadelphia or anywhere else, knows of the arrest, you won't get a cent. Now what do you say? The detective had a great deal to say. He wasn't at all sure the man Gallagher suspected was Haid. He feared he might get himself into trouble by making a false arrest, and if it should be the man, he was afraid the local police would interfere. "'We've no time to argue or debate this matter,' said Dwyer warmly. "'We agree to point Haid out to you in the crowd. After the fight is over, you arrest him as we have directed, and you get the money and the credit of the arrest.' If you don't like this, I will arrest the man myself and have him driven to town with a pistol for a warrant. Heffelfinger considered in silence, and then agreed unconditionally. As you say, Mr. Dwyer, he returned, I've heard of you for a thoroughbred sport. I know you'll do what you say you'll do, and as for me, I'll do what you say and just as you say, and it's a very pretty piece of work as it stands. They all stepped back into the cab, and then it was that they were met by a fresh difficulty. How to get the detective into the barn where the fight was to take place, for neither of the two men had two hundred and fifty dollars to pay for his admittance. 
but this was overcome when gallagher remembered the window of which young kepler had told him in the event of Hade's losing courage and not daring to show himself in the crowd around the ring, it was agreed that Dwyer should come to the barn and warn Heffelfinger. But if he should come, Dwyer was merely to keep near him and to signify by a prearranged gesture which one of the crowd he was. They drew up before a great black shadow of a house, dark, forbidding, and apparently deserted but at the sound of the wheels on the gravel the door opened, letting out a stream of warm, cheerful light, and a man's voice said, "'Put out those lights! Don't you know no better than that?' This was Kepler, and he welcomed Mr. Dwyer with effusive courtesy. The two men showed in the stream of light, and the door closed on them, leaving the house as it was at first, black and silent, save for the dripping of the rain and snow from the eaves. The detective and Gallagher put out the cab's lamps and led the horse toward a long, low shed in the rear of the yard, which they now noticed was almost filled with teams of many different makes, from the Hobson's choice of a livery stable to the brougham of the man about town. "'No,' said Gallagher, as the cabman stopped to hitch the horse beside the others, "'we want it nearest that lower gate.' When we newspaper men leave this place, we'll leave it in a hurry, and the man who is nearest town is likely to get there first. You won't be a following of no hearse when you make your return trip. Gallagher tied the horse to the very gatepost itself, leaving the gate open and allowing a clear road and a flying start for the prospective race to newspaper row. The driver disappeared under the shelter of the porch, and Gallagher and the detective moved off cautiously to the rear of the barn. "'This must be the window,' said Heffelfinger, pointing to a broad wooden shutter some feet from the ground. "'Just you give me a boost once, and I'll get that open in a jiffy,' said Gallagher. The detective placed his hands on his knees, and Gallagher stood upon his shoulders, and with the blade of his knife lifted the wooden button that fastened the window on the inside, and pulled the shutter open. Then he put one leg inside over the sill, and leaning down helped to draw his fellow conspirator up to a level with the window. "'I feel just like I was burglarizing a house,' chuckled Gallagher as he dropped noiselessly to the floor below and refastened the shutter. The barn was a large one, with a row of stalls on either side, in which horses and cows were dozing. There was a haymow over each row of stalls, and at one end of the barn a number of fence-rails had been thrown across from one mow to the other. These rails were covered with hay. In the middle of the floor was the ring— it was not really a ring, but a square, with wooden posts at its four corners through which ran a heavy rope. The space enclosed by the rope was covered with sawdust. Gallagher could not resist stepping into the ring, and after stamping the sawdust once or twice, as if to assure himself that he was really there, began dancing around it, and indulging in such a remarkable series of fistic maneuvers with an imaginary adversary that the unimaginative detective precipitately backed into a corner of the barn. "'Now then,' said Gallagher, having apparently vanquished his foe, "'you come with me.' 
his companion followed quickly as gallagher climbed to one of the haymows and crawling carefully out on the fence-rail stretched himself at full length face downward in this position by moving the straw a little he could look down without being himself seen upon the heads of whomsoever stood below this is better'n a private box ain't it said gallagher the boy from the newspaper office and the detective lay there in silence, biting at straws and tossing anxiously on their comfortable bed. It seemed fully two hours before they came. Gallagher had listened without breathing, and with every muscle on a strain, at least a dozen times, when some movement in the yard had led him to believe that they were at the door. And he had numerous doubts and fears sometimes it was that the police had learnt of the fight and had raided kepler's in his absence and again it was that the fight had been postponed or worst of all that it would be put off until so late that mr dwyer could not get back in time for the last edition of the paper their coming when at last they came was heralded by an advance guard of two sporting men who stationed themselves at either side of the big door "'Hurry up now, gents,' one of the men said with a shiver. "'Don't keep this door open no longer than is needful.' It was not a very large crowd, but it was wonderfully well selected. It ran, in the majority of its component parts, to heavy white coats with pearl buttons. The white coats were shouldered by long blue coats with astrakhan fur trimmings, the wearers of which preserved a clickness not remarkable when one considers that they believed everyone else present to be either a crook or a prize-fighter. There were well-fed, well-groomed clubmen and brokers in the crowd, a politician or two, a popular comedian with his manager amateur boxers from the athletic clubs and quiet close-mouthed sporting men from every city in the country their names if printed in the papers would have been as familiar as the types of the papers themselves and among these men whose only thought was of the brutal sport to come was hade with dwyer standing at ease at his shoulder Hade, white and visibly in deep anxiety, hiding his pale face beneath a cloth travelling cap, and with his chin muffled in a woollen scarf. He had dared to come because he feared his danger from the already suspicious Kepler was less than if he stayed away. And so he was there, hovering restlessly on the border of the crowd, feeling his danger and sick with fear. When Heffelfinger first saw him, he started up on his hands and elbows, and made a movement forward, as if he would leap down then and there, and carry off his prisoner single-handed. "'Lie down!' growled Gallagher. "'An officer of any sort wouldn't live three minutes in that crowd.' The detective drew back slowly, and buried himself again in the straw, but never once through the long fight which followed did his eyes leave the person of the murderer." The newspaper men took their places in the foremost row, close around the ring, and kept looking at their watches and begging the master of ceremonies to shake it up, do. There was a great deal of betting, and all of the men handled the great roll of bills they wagered with a flippant recklessness which could only be accounted for in Gallagher's mind by temporary mental derangement. 
someone pulled a box out into the ring and the master of ceremonies mounted it and pointed out in forcible language that as they were almost all already under bonds to keep the peace it behooved all to curb their excitement and to maintain a severe silence unless they wanted to bring the police upon them and have themselves sent down for a year or two then two very disreputable-looking persons toss their respective principals' high hats into the ring, and the crowd, recognizing in this relic of the days when brave knights threw down their gauntlets in the lists as only a sign that the fight was about to begin, cheered tumultuously. This was followed by a sudden surging forward, and a mutter of admiration much more flattering than the cheers had been, when the principals followed their hats, and slipping out of their greatcoats, stood forth in all the physical beauty of the perfect brute. Their pink skin was as soft and healthy-looking as a baby's, and glowed in the lights of the lanterns like tinted ivory, and underneath this silken covering the great biceps and muscles moved in and out, and looked like the coils of a snake around the branch of a tree. Gentlemen and blackguards shouldered each other for a nearer view. The coachmen, whose metal buttons were unpleasantly suggestive of police, put their hands, in the excitement of the moment, on the shoulders of their masters. The perspiration stood out in great drops on the foreheads of the backers, and the newspaper men bit somewhat nervously at the ends of their pencils and in the stalls the cows munched contentedly at their cuds and gazed with gentle curiosity at their two fellow-brutes who stood waiting the signal to fall upon and kill each other if need be for the delectation of their brothers take your places commanded the master of ceremonies in the moment in which the two men faced each other, the crowd became so still that, save for the beating of the rain upon the shingled roof and the stamping of a horse in one of the stalls, the place was as silent as a church. "'Time!' shouted the master of ceremonies. The two men sprang into a posture of defense, which was lost as quickly as it was taken. One great arm shot out like a piston-rod there was the sound of bare fists beating on naked flesh there was an exultant indrawn gasp of savage pleasure and relief from the crowd and the great fight had begun how the fortunes of war rose and fell and changed and rechanged that night is an old story to those who listen to such stories and those who do not will be glad to be spared the telling of it it was, they say, one of the bitterest fights between two men that this country has ever known. But all that is of interest here is that, after an hour of this desperate, brutal business, the champion ceased to be the favorite. The man whom he had taunted and bullied, and for whom the public had but little sympathy, was proving himself a likely winner and under his cruel blows as sharp and clean as those from a cutlass his opponent was rapidly giving way the men about the ropes were past all control now they drowned kepler's petitions for silence with oaths and in inarticulate shouts of anger as if the blows had fallen upon them and in mad rejoicings 
they swept from one end of the ring to the other with every muscle leaping in unison with those of the man they favored and when a new york correspondent muttered over his shoulder that this would be the biggest sporting surprise since the heenan sayers fight mr dwyer nodded his head sympathetically in assent in the excitement and tumult it is doubtful if any heard the three quickly repeated blows that fell heavily from the outside upon the big doors of the barn if they did it was already too late to mend matters for the door fell torn from its hinges and as it fell a captain of police sprang into the light from out of the storm with his lieutenants and their men crowding close at his shoulder in the panic and stampede that followed several of the men stood as helplessly immovable as though they had seen a ghost others made a mad rush into the arms of the officers and were beaten back against the ropes of the ring others dived headlong into the stalls among the horses and cattle and still others shoved the rolls of money they held into the hands of the police and begged like children to be allowed to escape the instant the door fell and the raid was declared, Heffelfinger slipped over the cross rails on which he had been lying, hung for an instant by his hands, and then dropped into the center of the fighting mob on the floor. He was out of it in an instant with the agility of a pickpocket, was across the room and at Hade's throat like a dog. The murderer, for the moment, was the calmer man of the two, here he panted hands off now there's no need for all this violence there's no great harm in looking at a fight is there there's a hundred dollar bill in my right hand take it and let me slip out of this no one is looking here but the detective only held him the closer i want you for burglary he whispered under his breath you've got to come with me now and quick the less fuss you make the better for both of us if you don't know who I am, you can feel my badge under my coat there. I've got the authority. It's all regular. And when we're out of this damned row, I'll show you the papers. He took one hand from Hade's throat and pulled a pair of handcuffs from his pocket. It's a mistake. This is an outrage, gasped the murderer, white and trembling, but dreadfully alive and desperate for his liberty. Let me go, I tell you. Take your hands off of me. Do I look like a burglar, you fool? I know who you look like, whispered the detective, with his face close to the face of his prisoner. Now, will you go easy as a burglar, or shall I tell these men who you are and what I do want you for? Shall I call out your real name or not? Shall I tell them? Quick, speak up. Shall I? There was something so exultant, something so unnecessarily savage in the officer's face, that the man he held saw that the detective knew him for what he really was, and the hands that had held his throat slipped down around his shoulders, or he would have fallen. The man's eyes opened and closed again, and he swayed weakly backward and forward, and choked as if his throat were dry and burning. Even to such a hardened connoisseur in crime as Gallagher, who stood closely by, drinking it in, there was something so abject in the man's terror that he regarded him with what was almost a touch of pity. "'For God's sake!' Hade begged. "'Let me go. 
come with me to my room and i'll give you half the money i'll divide with you fairly we can both get away there's a fortune for both of us there we both can get away you'll be rich for life do you understand for life but the detective to his credit only shut his lips the tighter that's enough he whispered in return that's more than i expected you've sentenced yourself already come Two officers in uniform barred their exit at the door, but Heffelfinger smiled easily and showed his badge. "'One of Burns's men,' he said, in explanation. "'Came over expressly to take this chap. He's a burglar. Arlie Lane, alias Carlton. I've shown the papers to the captain. It's all regular. I'm just going to get his traps at the hotel and walk him over to the station. I guess we'll push right on to New York tonight.' The officers nodded and smiled their admiration for the representative of what is perhaps the best detective force in the world, and let him pass. Then Heffelfinger turned and spoke to Gallagher, who still stood as watchful as a dog at his side. "'I'm going to the room to get his bonds and stuff,' he whispered. "'Then I'll march him to the station and take that train. I've done my share. Don't forget yours.' "'Oh, you'll get your money right enough,' said Gallagher. "'And say,' he added, with the appreciative nod of an expert, "'do you know you did it rather well?' Mr. Dwyer had been writing while the raid was settling down, as he had been writing while waiting for the fight to begin. Now he walked over to where the other correspondents stood in angry conclave. The newspaper men had informed the officers who hemmed them in that they represented the principal papers of the country and were expostulating vigorously with the captain who had planned the raid and who declared they were under arrest. "'Don't be an ass, Scott,' said Mr. Dwyer, who was too excited to be polite or politic. "'You know our being here isn't a matter of choice. We came here on business, as you did, and you've no right to hold us.' "'If we don't get our stuff on the wire at once,' protested a New York man, "'we'll be too late for tomorrow's paper, and—' Captain Scott said he did not care a profanely small amount for tomorrow's paper, and that all he knew was that to the station-house the newspaper men would go. There they would have a hearing, and if the magistrate chose to let them off, that was the magistrate's business, but that his duty was to take them into custody.' "'But then it will be too late. Don't you understand?' shouted Mr. Dwyer. "'You've got to let us go now, at once.' "'I can't do it, Mr. Dwyer,' said the captain, "'and that's all there is to it. "'Why, haven't I just sent the president of the Junior Republican Club to the patrol wagon, "'the man that put this coat on me, "'and do you think I can let you fellows go after that?' You were all put under bonds to keep the peace not three days ago, and here you're at it, fighting like badgers. It's worth my place to let one of you off. What Mr. Dwyer said next was so uncomplimentary to the gallant Captain Scott that that overwrought individual seized the sporting editor by the shoulder and shoved him into the hands of two of his men. This was more than the distinguished Mr. Dwyer could brook, and he excitedly raised his hand in resistance. But before he had time to do anything foolish, his wrist was gripped by one strong little hand, and he was conscious that another was picking the pocket of his great coat. He slapped his hands to his sides, and looking down saw Gallagher standing close behind him and holding him by the wrist. 
Mr. Dwyer had forgotten the boy's existence, and would have spoken sharply if something in Gallagher's innocent eyes had not stopped him. Gallagher's hand was still in that pocket in which Mr. Dwyer had shoved his notebook filled with what he had written of Gallagher's work and Hade's final capture, and with a running descriptive account of the fight. With his eyes fixed on Mr. Dwyer, Gallagher drew it out, and with a quick movement shoved it inside his waistcoat. Mr. Dwyer gave a nod of comprehension. Then, glancing at his two guardsmen, and finding that they were still interested in the wordy battle of the correspondence with their chief, and had seen nothing, he stooped and whispered to Gallagher, "'The forms are locked at twenty minutes to three. If you don't get there by that time, it will be of no use. But if you're on time, you'll beat the town, and the country, too.' Gallagher's eyes flashed significantly, and, nodding his head to show he understood, started boldly on a run toward the door. But the officers who guarded it brought him to an abrupt halt, and, much to Mr. Dwyer's astonishment, drew from him what was apparently a torrent of tears. "'Let me go to me father! I want me father!' the boy shrieked hysterically. "'They've arrested father! Oh, daddy, daddy! They're going to take you to prison!' "'Who is your father, Sonny?' asked one of the guardians of the gate. "'Kepler's me father,' sobbed Gallagher. "'They're going to lock him up, and I'll never see him no more.' "'Oh, yes, you will,' said the officer good-naturedly. "'He's there in that first patrol wagon. "'You can run over and say good-night to him, "'and then you'd better get to bed. "'This ain't no place for kids of your age.' "'Thank you, sir.' sniffed Gallagher tearfully, as the two officers raised their clubs and let him pass out into the darkness. End of section two.